Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Neurological. Uh, today's episode is going to be a little bit different um, because it's not going to be so much about uh, stuff that I'm thinking about, reading, all that kind of stuff. Um, it's actually going to be more about what Tiana, my partner in crime psychology, um, an interest of hers that she wants to share about with everybody. So what Alex is trying to say is that he's finally taking the focus off of him and putting it on me. Just kidding. But also not really. So this topic has a little bit, it does have relevance to, um, I'm sure, a lot of the interest of people who listen to this. Um, So psychology, criminal justice, um, the court system, that kind of thing. So it is definitely relevant, it's just from a different perspective um, than what we're used to talking about. So, Tiana, without going too much into detail um, about uh, the rest of the episode, uh, just tell us a little bit about um, dogs being used in the criminal justice system. Yeah, well first can I introduce where this even came about? Because so far your audience and also my audience has no idea about this. You didn't say yes, so that was awkward. (laughs) I thought it was just implied. No. So, Um, yes, for the record. (laughs) Well, to share really the reason behind this uh, with your audience and my audience, because I haven't really released this information even to people who are close to me yet, yet, but um, all of this came about because I published an article and I'm now a published author. Uh, insert applause here. <laughs> um, but a, a couple of years ago, I had uh, written a paper essentially about courthouse facility dogs um, and incorporating them into the criminal justice system. So just like a general overview, dogs being incorporated in the criminal justice system, I mean, some areas where I know of them are obviously courthouses, uh, police dogs, like, um, for different searches, um, drug searches, bomb detection, I guess, in your, your larger, uh, more metro areas. Um, this isn't necessarily the criminal justice system, but there's also dogs that work alongside the CIA, um, to again, do different, uh, searches and stuff. And I've even heard of, um, dogs that will work alongside people to help sniff out and detect things like um, termites in museums or things that would destroy artifacts. So um, we really have a a wide array of uses, I hate to use that word, but um, uses for dogs in almost every aspect of our lives. so the first one, or the, the one I'll be focusing mostly on, is talking about it in the criminal justice system. So quite literally inside the courts. I feel like there's a lot of, not a lot of, but there's there's some criticism and pushback when we look at dogs in the working world. Um, and I'll focus mostly on facility dogs. Um, and in the context that I'm talking about them today, they're dogs that go through rigorous training just like a service dog but we call them something different we call them a facility dog um and i know from my 
firsthand experience having Pinella for one. Um, these organizations that train them really do pay attention to do they want to do this work. So your dogs that are working inside of your courthouses are dogs that do seem to like and enjoy this work. So um, kind of put that little disclaimer out there because sometimes we look and, and people think, you know, oh, do they really like it? Are they really enjoying that? Is that harsh or cruel? Um, but if you're working through uh, an accredited organization, I can assure you there's a lot of attention that goes into that to make sure that it is a good, good fit. They're probably treated better than some of the employees, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know about employees in a service dog organization, but I, oh, no, I, mean... I can say <laughs> they get treated better than employees for sure. Um... So can you tell us a little bit more about dogs being used in the courtroom? Like what, what would their purpose be in the courtroom? I'm not thinking it's about searching or anything like that, so... Mm -hmm. So first, I have to I have to challenge our language and make sure that we're not using the word use because of the 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 certification that I'm getting. They're really tough on me for that to make sure we're not, you know, perpetuating that sense of using an animal. So it's always working alongside or incorporating. I mean, I slip up too, and sometimes I say even in my paper that I wrote, I I used the word use. Um, but dogs in the courtroom. Um, if you look in the research, a lot of what you see documented is dogs working alongside children who have been abused. Um, and really their sole purpose is to be there as a source of companionship, uh, to increase uh, a, a person's level of safety, uh, lessen the stress that they experience, because testifying is a very stressful experience. Um, and one of the, one of the main things documented in the literature why people might not pursue the criminal justice system following a crime is because of just how intimidating of a process it can be. So, um, like I said, a lot of the research really looks at the impact on children. Um, and what they found is that it, it does reduce stress levels. It does reduce anxiety. It allows for more seamless testimony and more of it to be like a conversation instead of um, kind of forcing the, the child or the individual to um, re-experience the abuse or the victimization that they once experienced. Um, it can also give people something else to focus on. So a lot of times if you're offering testimony in court, you're coming face to face with the perpetrator for the first time or perhaps one of the first times. Um, which can be very scary and again intimidating. So if you have a dog there to help focus your attention, you know, when you become upset or distressed by something that you're hearing or seeing, being able to direct your focus toward the animal instead of toward whatever is distressing you. Um, and there's a lot of preparation that goes in beforehand. You know, it's not just like you say, hey, we have a dog do you want it to come in the courthouse? The person says yes, and it happens. The, the good practice would be um, the person who's going to be offering testimony meets with the dog, spends time with it, lets the, the human-animal bond really work out and, and um, allows the, the two, the animal and the human, to interact. Um, so that's kind of like a recap. So can the person who's, I feel like I should know more about this than I do because 
I've been in court with victims, but we never had the uh, we never had the use of a dog until mm-hmm. after I left. I actually started using it. But um, can the person pet the dog, or is it just that they can be with the dog? Mm-hmm. Um, it's my understanding that yeah, they they can pet the dog. A lot of times, the dog sits like at the person's feet. Now I can't say that this happens all the time because it's my understanding all courthouses are set up differently, but. A lot of times they try to make the dog out of sight of everyone else. So it's not a distraction to everyone. Um, But yeah, so um, sometimes the dogs will be trained to um, say like apply pressure or maybe (laughs) this might be bad practice, but like offer a paw if if the dog is recognizing something in the human. Um, But yeah, I think... I don't know what kinds of discussions go into it beforehand as far as, like, what you can and what you cannot do. Obviously, like, an individual can get down on the floor and, like, pet and kiss the animal during uh, testimony. But I think, you know, just light light pets, that's really what they're there for. Hmm. Do you know, is the jury instructed that the dog is present? Yeah, and so this is one of, you know, there's... Um, strengths and limitations to um, incorporating courthouse dogs into into um, testimony Um, and one of those things in really institutionalizing this intervention has been how will a jury perceive a victim with an animal because if a jury is if people on on that jury are um, like leaning towards an animal they're going to feel sympathetic or, or more empathic um, so I, I address that in my paper, um, and I'm citing Courthouse Dogs Foundation here, um, but based on, like, research that they've done, as well as, um, an appellate decision in State v. Die, um, they say that the presence of the dog in the courtroom doesn't serve as a distraction, and the jury is specifically instructed not to make any assumptions or draw any conclusions based on the presence of the dog. Um, Now, while I do recognize that is great, I imagine as a human, it's, it's hard to just make it clear cut to say, don't make any assumptions based on the dog. I think that that's why they do their very best to keep the dog pretty much out of sight and, um, you know, out of sight, out of mind kind of thing. Um, but it's my hope that this can become kind of like a normalcy where dogs are just in the courtroom and then it does become a thing for the jury to be able to say, uh, well, it's just like having the stuffed animal or whatever. If they use stuffed animals, I don't even know. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just funny because you say, like, they're instructed not to take that into consideration. They're all, like, the jury is always instructed, like, you know, don't do outside research when you leave here. Don't um, take into consideration this objection, like anything that was off the off the record or an objection that they're not supposed to listen to but again they may have already been influenced at that point so it's really you're telling humans to not be influenced by their human like ob- observations basically mm-hmm. um, so it's not perfect but I just wanted to know if, if that was a, a part of it mm-hmm. yeah I, I think it's it's a step in the right direction for sure um, I think it just takes more and more exposure to people recognizing that, you know, dogs do exist. I think they're here to stay in courtrooms. Um, 
whether it is through a, a facility dog that's trained to be in that courtroom or there's the the opportunity and this is what's more common you see therapy dogs in a courtroom um and that's a that's a whole different that's a whole different podcast episode <laughs> but um what we're talking about is facility dogs who specifically work inside of that courthouse that is their job um which is a little bit different therapy dog is more a pet with a purpose kind of thing so who handles the facility dog in the courthouse uh that can vary um so like you used to work as a victim advocate um you could have very easily if you wanted to tried to advocate at your workplace to say i i want to apply and get a, a courthouse facility dog and you could be the handler because you were in and out of court all the time um so it could be victim advocates could be forensic interviewers um even like mental health counselors it was documented in the literature that they can serve as handlers um primarily it's anybody that works inside of the courthouse um so courthouse personnel people who are already there working so it could um, be like a district attorney like assistant district attorney yep the lawyers mm-hmm. um probation officers mm-hmm Yes, you know the people who work in there. I don't know the people who work in there. I just know that it says people who work in courthouses. Yeah. I actually, I think, and if anybody listening um, lives in Fox County, Pennsylvania, um, I believe that uh, Daisy, the facility dog there, um, I believe she's handled by several people, mm-hmm. um, which I don't know if you've heard of before, mm-hmm. but um, one of them is actually a, a law clerk. So she's not actually a lawyer or something, but... Yeah, no, that makes sense. And it's not uncommon to see many handlers handling one dog. The The thing is, is that there is always that primary handler, or it's my understanding, maybe maybe they have a system worked out. Um, but the primary handler who will take the dog home with them, who's responsible for their care, their feeding, things like that. That's the way I typically see it done. I'm not saying that that's always the case. But fun fact, Daisy is Penella's niece, so... Penelope's niece is out there doing excellent work. <laughs> what would the reason be for having multiple handlers? Um, maybe just ease through the day. Um, say if say if it if it is an attorney, if the handler is an attorney, and the attorney has case after case after case after case, they can't really attend to the dog's mm. needs, and you don't want a dog to be in court the entire day anyway you want them to have time off time away because dogs feel just like we do um not just like we do but they have feelings and they they can burn out just like we can um so probably just that um like more like scheduling yeah yeah does the dog have a special designation like in terms of like do they wear something um while they're at work, we'll mm-hmm. say? A lot of times they do, but um, again, if we're talking just facility dogs, they don't technically have to. Um, so that's a very similar thing with service dogs. People think that they have to wear a vest, but actually ADA does not require that they wear a vest. Um, so similar thing with facility dog. It's best practice to wear a vest, to wear something that's marking it like, hey, I'm a facility dog. Um, kind of the same practices like don't touch unless instructed you know unless we've had a conversation about Mm -hmm. yes this is what you do um i say kind of because their their function is a little bit different than a service dog they're there essentially for 
the public versus one specific individual. So it really varies based on each facility dog's purpose. Doesn't the vest or whatever they're wearing, doesn't that also kind of give the dog a sense of, okay, I'm at work now. Mm -hmm. I can't or I won't do certain things, but then take the vest off the dog and the dog knows that that means they have a little bit more freedom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely can. And I mean, even speaking experience from with Penella, um, it was a very distinct shift from vest is on, we're in work mode, vest is off, we're in play mode. You now have all the free range to to do Hmm. whatever within reason. So yeah, it's kind of like you get up and you put your work clothes on and it puts you in that mentality you're going to work. Right. Not so much maybe during a pandemic, but... When you put on your work slippers. My work slippers. <laughs> That's my compartmentalization. <laughs> um, so tell us more about your paper. What what do you focus on in the paper versus we kind of just broadly just talked on dogs mm-hmm. and use... Or, I'm sorry... And incorporation. That's okay. I still, in my papers, they, I get them back each time and they're like, remember to use better language. Yeah, I'm trying. Um, yeah, so my paper, it's not necessarily groundbreaking in any way. Um, I'm not going to credit myself for doing like this extensive research project. Um, but really what I did was highlighted a gap in the research. So like I said, a lot of the research that's out there on courthouse facility dogs or even just therapy dogs is looking at their impact on children. Um, again, specifically children who've been abused. Now, even from when I started this paper in 2017 until now, there's been a huge growth in the literature. So I can't even really say that that's entirely accurate at this moment. Um, but when I was writing it, the literature was scant when it came to looking at the impact of dogs on adult survivors of trauma. Hmm. Um, So in writing the paper, essentially what I did was highlighted, hey, we have all of this really good evidence to say um, dogs are of therapeutic benefit for kids testifying. Why don't we take the same intervention we're using with kids and now apply it to adults? Um, And then really documented, you know, what are some of the the physical health benefits, the mental health benefits? how How can dogs help us to mitigate a crisis situation Hmm. um and that i mean the the course that i wrote this for was for crisis intervention um so it fit nicely in that you know really taking a look at people who are who survive trauma or victimization they experience an initial crisis with the victimization and then they can experience a secondary crisis when they have to go to court because it's really just reliving and retelling and re-experiencing the initial crisis. Um, so what I was proposing is in order to mitigate that secondary crisis and really alleviate uh, the distress that can come with that, why don't we implement this animal-assisted intervention? Hmm. Um, so while I didn't do like the more quantitative research for it. I I could, that could be very ambitious. Um, What I've done is basically set it up for someone to go ahead and do that. Now this gives the documentation that, hey, this looks like it would be a good idea. And now I'm sure it's already being done um, if it hasn't already been done, um, just to show 
really the impact of this intervention because I know that they are being incorporated for adult survivors of trauma. Um, it's just, like I said, when I did the paper, it wasn't documented yet. Right. You just kind of said, hey, looks like it works here, so why don't we try it somewhere else? Mm -hmm. which, yes. is, which is pretty interesting because that it went from use with kids or use with children to use with adults because a lot of the time, at least in the criminal justice system, we're seeing that a lot of the practices start and then go to the adult system or ideas are being transferred from one to the other, like uh, focusing on rehabilitation starts in the juvenile justice system and now we're trying to implement that into the adult system. Mm -hmm. um, so it's interesting that it goes the same way. We kind of use it with children first and then we say, okay, now we can try with adults. Yeah, which is a really interesting trend in the research because as a, a up-and-coming researcher myself, I want to stay as far away from researching children as I can because there's so many more complexities that you add when you study that population. Mm -hmm. um, but the fact that this is where they started with researching dogs and kids um, versus being able to bypass some of those complexities of working with minors and going right to just studying the impact on adults. It's, it's an interesting research trend. Um, but I also think it kind of makes sense from a society standpoint. It feels like there's almost this, like, lack of permission for an adult to have a dog alongside them. Like, you should be able to handle it. You should be able to do this kind of mentality in our society. Versus for a child, it's like, oh, it's cute, it's cuddly, it's it's worthy of helping them get through it. But the child needs the help. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas adults, like, well, you made decisions that got you into that place. <laughs> so mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of victim blaming. I can't say that that's why we started um, with children first, but I'm sure it had a little bit to do with it. It's just not as cute and cuddly <laughs> right. of an approach. Do you know? Is there? mention in your paper or in other stuff about like who what adults would benefit from this um like specific gender is it focusing on male versus females um certain kinds of victimizations um so you mentioned for children it was like abuse um but for adults you know my own experience any victimization is traumatic not just abuse um so is it just one kind of victimization for adults too or mm -hmm. my paper I focused primarily on intimate partner violence um, I didn't necessarily look at like different types of abuse and my hunch is that it wouldn't matter too much um, so long as the traumatic incident didn't involve a dog <laughs> like for example if if a person's in there because they were mauled by someone else's dog, you want to look at that. You want to see, would this be an appropriate intervention? Um, but even saying that, um, just because a person has, say, a fear to dogs doesn't mean we have to disqualify this as a potential intervention for them. Um, so it's really just about uh, educating people on it uh, and then letting them have control and letting them decide do they think it would be best for them? Because remember, they are the victim, they are the survivor. They know what's best for them in that kind of sense. So just listening to them. So 
Um, none of my research pointed to like males versus females or, you know, older adults versus younger adults. Um, I would more so say just having the knowledge, being equipped with the knowledge to share with the victim as a potential resource for them. And then, you know, helping them to make an informed decision mm. on their own. Makes sense. But that would be a good area for research. You know, to see is there a specific population this works best for or does not work best for. Hmm. Yeah, when, I mean, it kind of goes back to the whole idea of, like, prejudice. Um, like, prejudicing preju the jury. <laughs> um, or biasing the, even the researchers. Or biasing the courtroom th uh, staff. Um, and the idea that it may work well with all populations, but then the idea being that it's more prejudicial in certain populations. So if I use a dog with the children, like you were saying, it's seen as helpful and the child does need that. So we can maybe assume, um, or we'll say, uh, guess, um, cause I don't like to assume, but we can guess that if a female was using the dog it might be more sympathetic than if a male was using it mm -hmm. they would be like why why is the man need that dog like there would be questions about it um and then ev maybe even an age thing so like a 40 year old woman or man is up there with the dog and it would be like why do they need that but then an 80 year old man or woman would be up there and they'd be like oh that's nice like it's helping the senior citizen mm -hmm. um, or helping the elderly so i could see that as like an influence too yeah well, and I kind of like your thinking there, and it makes me think deeper into, like, people with visible disabilities versus non-visible disabilities. Invisible. <laughs> Invisible disabilities. <laughs> um, because I feel like our culture is getting better at um, seeing someone in a wheelchair with a dog and saying, oh, okay, like, that, I accept versus an invisible disability with a dog you no longer accept and you question and you wonder so if if the victim were visibly disabled having a dog present may make the jury accept it if you were either not disabled or just had an invisible disability there might be questions hmm. so yeah that that would be an interesting research direction for all those out there researchers who are listening <laughs> i mean i even see it for crime types so abuse would be a more sympathetic crime that a person could use the dog but then theft i'm not saying that theft is any less tra traumatic for a person i'm just saying it might be less sympathetic in a jury's eyes like why do you need a dog if you know someone stole five dollars from your wallet mm -hmm. Versus, you know, being, experiencing intimate partner violence or something. Yeah. Um, so I could see that even, unfortunately, being kind of played out too. Well, and I've even read, like, because um, there's a lot of schools that are getting facility dogs for children just to facilitate, like, their social skills, their reading abilities, just the overall learning environment. Um, and I've seen comments from presumably parents or just adults in the community, you know, just saying how... Uh, having dogs alongside children like we're just coddling them and we're not setting them up for the real world and things like that and to that I kind of question like why not like we have this useful tool this useful thing 
useful animal, whatever you want to call it, why would we not incorporate it into our lives where we can? How is it, uh, can the dog be used just for testimony purposes, um, like during a trial, or can it also be used when the person's giving like a victim impact statement? I think it can be used for both. I, I haven't read anything to say it can only be for these specific instances. I could be wrong. There's a lot of information and data out there, but that's not something I stumbled across. My, my guess would be, um, based on my experience and, and knowledge, would be if it's allowed to use in trial testimony, that's more strict than a victim impact statement. Mm -hmm. So, like, if it's allowed to be used then, that's when you're worried about, like, the prejudice and all that kind of stuff creeping in, and there's a jury present. For when the victim impact statement's coming, it's more so about the sentence. Um, so you do have to worry about it prejudicing or um, causing bias to the judge um, who's imposing the sentence. But at the same time, I think if it was allowed during the testimony, it could be used then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I haven't seen anything to say no. So that, I mean, is there anything else... You you want to talk about with your um, with that area of research um, before we talk more about the publication process? Uh, I don't think so other than just I mean when I wrote this paper I wrote it as a, um, a counseling candidate um, so the paper is really oriented toward like what counselors can do um, so just to kind of wrap up on that piece you know whether you're um, counselor, therapist, psychologist, you know, working in that really healthcare uh, capacity, I think just what can you do with this information? Well, first, educate yourself more. Um, start with my paper, because why not? Um, and then learn more. See if there's courthouse facility dogs in your county. Um, and when you stumble across clients who, you know, have to go through the court process, educate them about, hey, this this is a potential intervention. I did that with a client of my own, honestly, because um, we have courthouse dogs here. Um, so just educating them about it, saying, hey, here's a potential resource, you know, getting in touch with um, courthouse personnel, doing whatever you have to to help them get connected to that resource. Because in this particular instance, um, my client had no idea, even though we have the dogs. So someone wasn't cluing her into that. Um, also grant writing. I know the, the cost of facility dogs can be quite high. Um, um, 5,000 is a, a number that I've heard quite frequently, but that varies just on based on each organization. So like your role as a, as a counselor or a clinician could be helping to write grants for courthouses who are interested or educating courthouses about this potential intervention and just really trying to um, provide some outreach uh, and advocate for this service in your specific county. Um, so that's just a little bit of like, what do we do with this knowledge now that we have it? Hmm. Um, so you want to talk a little bit about your, your woes of publication? <laughs> Yeah, so this For anybody was, that doesn't know. This was, and maybe this is quick, I don't actually know a standard, um, but I submitted this in October of 2019. 
um, and it took it a full calendar year. Um, so October of 2020, it was officially, I think October 19th, it was officially um, published in uh, the Journal of Creativity and Mental Health. Yes, October 19th. Um, so it was a really long, drawn-out process. And I don't know if COVID had anything to do with that. Very well could have. Um, but I know I said to you repeatedly, like, I felt like I was just left in the dark. I submitted this paper, and then I don't think I heard back from my first edits until, like, April. Um, so just a really, <laughs> really long process. And each step of the way was you know, making edits here, making edits here. And there was actually some pieces of the paper that I ended up having to change that I didn't want to change. I felt like it changed the meaning a little bit or mm. wasn't my writing style. So that was kind of interesting, um, but I'm glad that this paper was kind of like my guinea pig to that because I do hope to keep on publishing um, in many different capacities. Um so it wasn't a horrible process. It, it got accepted a lot easier than I thought it would. You know, my edits weren't anything too, too major. Um, but it was definitely intimidating along the way. I had absolutely no guidance, really no mentorship with it. I was kind of doing it blind and just hoping for the best, um, which should give some hope <laughs> because I, I navigated it and um, I'm holding it in paper as we speak. I imagine it might be partly influenced by COVID delays, but so a lot of the delays weren't your doing, it was waiting on the publishers mm -hmm. or the editors, whatever. Yeah. A lot of the times I would get the email that says, you know, your, your paper is ready for review and edits and get it back to us in 10 days. So that was like, that was one of the most frustrating parts along the way was just, you know, it, it took months to review and then hurry up in 10 days. And it always seemed to have fallen like on a time where something had happened for me or like I just started school and now all of a sudden I need to focus on this paper again. Um, but you had deadlines and it didn't seem like they did. Yeah. Yeah. I think it would have been nice just to know along the way, like you will hear back by February, you will mm. hear back by April. Um, a lot of un unknown for you mm -hmm. along the way yeah yeah definitely nerve-wracking but would I do it again absolutely <laughs> even with with a year's worth of really just sitting on the edge of my seat any myths that you want to dispel about when you publish a paper like um some people might believe that you make money off of it mm -hmm. or um that it's widely available or stuff like that I don't yeah, those, those are some good, good questions. So I always thought when I came across an academic article and they made me pay for it, I used to look at that author's name and be like, what are you doing? Why can I not access your research? What are you hiding from me? Um, and now I am one of those authors. And I will tell you that it is not the author's fault. Um, so I'm not exactly sure the, the, the exact terminology of it. I think it's like open access versus closed access. I don't know. Um, it, from what I understand, open access is anybody has access to it. It's free. It's right there. Um, one thing that I did not know is that different, I guess it's publishers have different types of access. So mine is a fee to the articles that they publish, that they create. 
Um, so I don't see any of that money. Um, I, I don't know where that goes. Um, but yeah, really just dispelling the myth of, or at least the myth that I thought that when you came across an article that made you pay, the author was asking for money. Mm. Um, and also an interesting part when I was, um, going through, like I could have, I guess, chosen to pay to publish it free, I think. <laughs> um, but I'm not made of money, so. <laughs> so you would have paid and then people who want to read it would get to access it for free. I think so. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, how selfish of you for not paying for everybody in the world to read your articles. Yes, yes. But if you are interested in reading it, I um, have a couple of free free copies of it. <laughs> so there's that piece. What is the title of your article if people want to search it? Oh, yeah, it? duh. Um, so it's Courthouse Facility Dogs, colon, an intervention for survivors of intimate partner violence. That way, if anybody, especially, like, people who are affiliated with universities, like, students and faculty might be able to access it for free through their institution mm -hmm. versus the general public might not have that, um, unfortunately, but... Yeah, so I'll save my free copies for the general public and all you, all you people in academia go ahead and request it through your library. <laughs> That's what the schools pay for, so... Oh, yeah. Makes sense. Um, so, last thing here... What, um, what future paper topics uh, would you want to, to write about and hopefully publish? Mm, yes. So there's a lot. I feel like my mind goes a million miles a minute when I think about different topics. Um, where I really want to uh, dig my heels into is looking at um, the relationship between interpersonal and animal violence, um, which is one of my research interests in in our doctorate program um that as well as looking at um like pet companionship and suicidality um so i'm not exactly sure at this point what that looks like um but just kind of keeping keeping within that human animal field um linking the two together and coming up with some research there what um do you see like a benefit to publishing a paper versus doing a presentation, a poster, um, a conference presentation, um, a round table, like, mm -hmm. is there, do you prefer to write papers or do you feel like a presentation would be? Mm, that's a good question. So with this paper alone, I kind of did all, um, I, I wrote the paper and then I, presented about it through a, through a poster presentation um, at a couple different conferences. Um, hard to say. I feel more proud of the paper um, because now it's out there for literally anybody in the world versus the conference presentations. It was just a couple people that I talked to. Um, I don't know. I think it's kind of a like to each their own sort of thing. If if you are really big into disseminating your findings, your your presentations are going to be much more beneficial. Hmm. Um, I think it also depends on the type of paper that you write or the type of research that you're doing. 
you know, this, like I said, it's not entirely groundbreaking, so it's not so much that I have to try to disseminate it at all these different um, conferences. So I think the paper would have sufficed, um, but I just really took advantage. I did a lot of hard work on it, so <laughs> I presented it in any way that I could. Yeah, I mean, that's cool because it's kind of like... Uh like how I do blog posts, but then also podcasting, like you just reach different audiences mm -hmm. and in a different way that some people may never read your article, but they could see you in a presentation and it would be mm -hmm. same information or, or at least more of a conversation too. Yeah. I feel more, I feel proud about the paper. Um, but I remember in those presentations, I felt very good educating people about things that they had absolutely no idea existed. So, you know, that, that does feel kind of good because you're, you're the expert in that moment. And I mean, at that point that was three years ago. So I was like early twenties. Um, so it felt good to be the expert at these national conferences. Yeah. And I mean, it's more, you get the immediate feedback as well. Oh yeah. Versus when you, when you publish that, unless someone writes to you or does something like that, you will never know what they think of the paper, mm -hmm. but in the conferences and stuff, you actually get to see, you know, what do people think of this? And it gives you new ideas, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And some, like, I got some really challenging questions that, you know, I know, I know assistance dogs, working dog field in and out, or at least I know, a good, I know a good amount about it. Um, but even, even knowing as much as I do, I was still challenged by questions from people that they were hearing this information for the very first time. So that's a, I mean, that could be a, a good sign, though, because that means that your paper, tr you, you're saying it's not groundbreaking, but at the same time, the fact that people really hadn't heard of a lot of the stuff means that it was still important. Yeah. And new to people. Yeah, that is true. I, I saw myself short on it by saying it's not groundbreaking because it's not groundbreaking to me because <laughs> um, it's a logical thing for me. If we're mm -hmm. using it for children, why are we not using it for why are we not documenting that we're using it for animals or for, for, for adults at this point? Um, so yes, it could be groundbreaking for some and maybe not so much for others. Anything else you want to share about it? I don't think so. Thanks for letting me come on and talk about dogs and all things fun for the sure. last 40 something minutes. Yeah. And I mean, well, definitely this uh, information is relevant to Obviously, it's relevant to the criminal justice system, definitely to psychology, um, so we'll definitely have future conversations about it. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, and I will also be, at the, at the time that this episode is coming out, um, writing a blog post on it as well, so. Cool. Yeah. So if anybody wants to check that out, um, how do they find your blog? Um, through, it's sit-stay-blog dot net okay so yeah. it's, they can just search that or they could find you on instagram or or facebook facebook yeah and kind of figure it out on there mm -hmm. okay so yeah if anybody wants to check it out on there you can read more about it um i know you've done other posts with you know obviously animal themed um blog posts so people who listen to this episode might be interested in that as well mm-hmm all right. Well, thank you all for listening uh, to this uh, different um, kind of podcast episode, um, and we hope to 
hear from you about this. Um, any thoughts? Um, Tiana can always try to answer your questions. Um, so you can reach out to her directly through Sit State Blogs, Instagram, um, direct message her, anything like that. Um, or you can always reach out to me and I can definitely get you the answers through her as well. Sounds All right. Good. Remember, Neurological is a true crime podcast to be psyched about. <laughs>